This is Crypto Radio, powered by MoneyWeb, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Jan Vermeulen has been doing yeoman's work over at My Broadband, covering the MTI story through all of its agonizing convulsions. I think I'm right in saying Jan was the first to report on the story long before it captured national headlines. Now, just to recap, based on the information we have, MTI managed to accumulate 23,000 Bitcoin from tens of thousands of people all over the world, and it did this by promising them a return of up to 10% a month. Now, ironically, you'd have been better off buying Bitcoin and simply leaving it in a wallet last year because Bitcoin's price went up more than 300% in the course of 2020. The Financial Sector Conduct Authority in August last year warned investors to pull their money out of MTI because they saw no evidence of a company making profits from trading. The words scam and Ponzi scheme were being thrown around whenever the subject of MTI was raised in public. So Jan Vermeulen, thanks very much for coming on. Would you agree with me that MTI and the fact that it originated out of South Africa has damaged South Africa's reputation as a regional financial hub? Hi, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So a couple of things. This shows you how uh, extremely complicated this topic is. So I do want to give some kudos to MoneyWeb here, who definitely did cover the announcements coming from the FSCA in August before I touched the story. I got pulled into it as a result of Anonymous ZA and the technical angle of the story. And so I, I will definitely take credit for helping to expose the inner world workings of the scheme as a result of the work done by Anonymous ZA. And, and um, you know, I worked with them and contacted MTI to try and make sure that the information was disclosed as responsibly as possible. And then the thing about, that you mentioned about the 23,000 Bitcoin, I think it might, you know, be worthwhile to spend some time on that because the, the 23,000 comes from the last balance that MTI claimed was in its trading pool. But also on the 14th of September, Anonymous ZA claimed that 23,000 Bitcoin had been deposited into the scheme. And that was at 14 September. So I think it, it actually stands to reason. Now, now, the reason those two numbers, um, you know, are so, you know, that we've arrived at the same number, 23,000, but through different means, is because the trading pool at 14 September was actually about 17,000 Bitcoin. So between September and December, when the scheme collapsed, it had actually grown from around 17,000 to 23,000. And so I think it stands to reason that the actual deposits taken in by MTI, and sorry if my logic is all over the place, I hope people have followed me here, but it stands to reason that the the actual amount of money taken in by MTI actually far exceeds 23,000 Bitcoin. Actual question. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I think South Africa's reputation and standing as a leader in financial technology is definitely under siege as a result of all the scams that are happening in the country. You know, it's unfortunate that South Africa has become a safe haven for these kinds of scams. You know, you see international professional Ponzi investors piling into all kinds of South African scams. And it, it certainly doesn't do us any good. And certainly I hope that what doesn't happen out of this is that we end up getting red flagged by the international community in much the same way as our passports already get red flagged due to the um, the amount of illegal activity originating from the country. Let's just go back to that point about the amount of Bitcoin taken in there. Okay, so between September and December, you had a growth in Bitcoin 
of between 17,000 and 23,000. So despite all of the warnings that were coming out of the FSCA and all of the publicity, adverse publicity that was going on, you had people throwing their money at MTI. Now, this is a fascinating thing for me. Why do you think that happened? Were people just tuning out? Was it because MTI were so good at controlling their communication? They were saying, don't believe what you're reading in the press. This is all nonsense. We're good to go. Yes, it's a combination of those. So firstly, another point to make here is that I actually managed to see a chart that one of the investigators had drawn up, probably based on the open source information out there now, about the number of withdrawals coming out of MTI. So the number of withdrawals in August in MTI skyrocketed. And I don't have the exact figure in front of me now, but Sherry Marks actually, in one of her many response videos to the media reports about MTI, actually disclosed the number of withdrawals that they had processed during August. So this growth is in spite of the huge number of withdrawals that was being done through the system. And so I do think that the FSCA's warning might have had, because its warning came in August, and I think its warning had something to do with the spike in withdrawals that we saw in MTI during August. But yes, in spite of that, MTI was able to convince people, and this is where the the insidiousness of multi-level marketing, of a pyramid scheme comes into play because um, you don't actually have to trust Johann Steinberg, the CEO of, of MTI, or Clinton Marks, who was the actually at the top of the pyramid um, of this multi-level marketing structure. You know, and perhaps that could be something that, that's worth exploring a little bit more, is despite the fact that Johann Steinberg was touted as the CEO of the company, it was Clinton who was at the top of the pile when it came to the referral marketing scheme. But that referral marketing scheme is the thing that drove the growth of the system because you don't have to trust these people at the top of the pile. You just have to trust the guy who referred you in and said, look, look at you know all this money that I've got out of the scheme and you can make all this money too. Now, if that's your your significant other, your brother, your mother, you know, a, a trusted close friend, then that has far more impact than some skeezy, shady looking dude trying to sell you a scheme. If it's somebody that you know and trust that has had success in the scheme, then you buy in. And that's that's how MTI was able to perpetuate itself is uh, by by allowing a certain amount of withdrawals and, and allowing people to cash out some money, um, they were able to convince people that the scheme was legitimate and uh, they just got more and more and more deposits in, as is evidenced by the data that we got out of the work of the folks like Anonymous ZA. Yeah, let's just talk about Anonymous ZA because they managed to hack the MTI database apparently without too much difficulty. And what it showed was some truly outrageous returns to the top people in the scheme. Now, I don't know if we can say with certainty this information is correct. The information is out there. It has been dumped. It's leaked uh, there on the, on the web. And I'm sure the FSCA and the liquidators will soon be able to verify whether those figures are true or not. But some of the guys at the top look like they scored more than $100 million over a period of maybe a couple of years. There's one person there who started in April 2019 with $100. He put in $100, yes. and by December, he had $37 million 
in his account. Jan, yes. how is yes. that possible? How is it that a guy can go from $100 to $37 million in 20 months? It, because it's a scam. That's, that's the, that was the key thing that convinced me that this is a, a story worth reporting on and worth investing the hours that I did, was when Anonymous ZA came to me with the data and said, look at this, and did some digging and uh, did some verifying because one of the, the beautiful things of this is that a lot of the people in this scheme were being quite open about what they were achieving with it. Well, they were posting to YouTube, they were posting to social media, their balances. And so you could actually look at the date of their YouTube video and then look at the data that Anonymous Zeta had pulled and see, oh, this matches up. You know, so so at least this data we know is accurate. And so, you know, you you take a couple of of data points like that, a couple of spot checks and you go, yeah, this looks accurate. And the, the likelihood of uh, this data being accurate is just higher and higher the more of these data points that you verify. And so, you know, that's that's what ultimately convinced me um, that, you know, this needs to be exposed and, uh, you know, people need to be warned. Because this is the tricky thing about reporting about schemes like that, right? Definitive proof that a thing is a pyramid um, without a court pronouncing it a pyramid is is just about impossible because they're, they're all so secretive and the schemes are so contrived that – uh, that, that they, they make it incredibly difficult to say outright, this is a Ponzi, this is a pyramid, because they're like, no, but on, we honestly, we, we have this amazing magical bot program. And so we provide a service and the service is access to the bot. How do you prove that bot doesn't exist? Right. So so this was the the trick with Mirror Trading International. And so without being able to, in our original article, say this is a pyramid, you know, you can at least show people, look at these discrepancies. How does a person put in $100? And unfortunately, our laws in South Africa prohibited us from um, from from uh, giving direct examples like that. Our, our, uh, our privacy laws, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, disallowed you from going and look at how much this person is earning. Now, maybe there was an argument to be made to say, you know, the, redact the name. Um, that kind of the, the whole thing loses its oomph then. Yeah. But um, to actually show people how does someone earn a 10,000% return, you know, but other people lower down in the scheme are earning a mere 0.5% a day, which is still ridiculous. How does this happen? Well, how does this founders pool happen? You know, the, uh, in the wake of the MTI leaks, you know, MTI made a, a big song and dance of no, there's no secret with a founders pool. Everybody knows how it works. But there were people in MTI who said, I had no idea about this founders pool thing. Yeah. And so, you know, like when, when you highlight those discrepancies to people, hopefully that's enough to, to wave them off and convince them that something isn't right here. Right. There are a couple of things that come out of that. So maybe you, you did a great article there last week on my broadband just explaining this commission system and what they call a binary system. Now, I understand yes. that you can buy these, uh, these software programs out of China and India. Um, you know, you can set up a scam off the shelf yeah. with these things. Yes. Just explain very briefly, what is that binary system? So you've got to sign up people underneath you and you earn commissions from what they then bring in terms of money to the scheme. 
Right. So you get a couple of different types of models of these referral schemes. And, and the, the terminology has changed over the years. So pyramid became a dirty word. And so, you know, they, they started calling it multi-level marketing. And, and multi-level marketing is now associated with pyramid and with people losing money, um, despite, you know, the fact that you've got, you know, real products perhaps on the back of these multi-level marketing schemes. And so they now use other terminology like binary system and binary tree and they've got left legs and right legs and the whole idea is to make the thing as contrived as possible so that when somebody from the outside tries to criticize it they go no but you don't even understand how the scheme works like you know like like that is actually a counter argument to to going yeah you know but the basic fundamentals are this thing is unsustainable and is going to collapse so first thing to your point about you know these systems are available off the shelf that's exactly it and, and i'll be hopefully reporting on a a similar situation in a new article on my broadband for a different scheme but yeah this particular mti the system that mti used they bought from a company called Maxtratech or licensed from a company called Maxtratech in India. I see Maxtratech has disavowed them now. You know, MTI was on Maxtra's portfolio page. Uh, they were bragging with it. That's been removed. The website's been taken off the internet now. But to give people an idea of how the MTI scheme worked, there's a couple of different ways to earn commissions off of referrals. The first one is your direct referral bonus. So that is you sign someone up and you get 10% on the amount that they deposit into their account. Now, every time they deposit an amount into their account, you will earn 10% on that as well, provided basically they haven't withdrawn money. They, they, they call that the high water mark. And there's uh, a formula for, for calculating the high water mark. But basically, it's a way to try and convince people to keep their money in the scheme rather than withdraw it because you'll get um, you know constant kickbacks up to the top of the, of the pyramid that way. So that's the, the one direct referral bonus. Then um, they, they've got the scheme where they try to, with smoke and mirrors, uh, go, you know, this is how we are dispersing the profit that our magical trading bot makes. And so only, um, I think, 40% or so of your profits, of the profit that the bot makes gets paid out directly. Yeah, um, I, that's 40%. I've got the, the structure in front of me now. Then 20% goes to what they call the binary tree. Now, how that works is they calculate the people who are underneath you in the pyramid and uh, then they they disperse you know twenty percent of these so-called profits to members in the scheme based on the weakest leg of your of your binary tree. So uh, you can't, you don't just sign up into the pyramid. Um, you have to uh, you know the, the the person who signs you up decides whether you're going to be on their left leg or their right leg, and um, the, then you know the the amount of money that's been deposited into the scheme on the left leg is calculated and the right leg is calculated and you are paid your binary bonus based on your weakest leg. Um, then you've got the leadership bonus, part one and part two, which uh, is based on whether people underneath you qualify for these binary bonuses. So to qualify for a binary bonus, you need to at least have $200 worth of Bitcoin in your account. So the, the part one leadership bonus is calculated uh, based on how many people in your quote-unquote team 
is uh, binary qualified. And then the part two leadership bonus is based on how many of your direct referrals as referrals are binary qualified. So when I say they make this thing intentionally contrived, I've hopefully made my point there and not caused people to nod off. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the thing is contrived. Okay. I think you've probably had a ton of emails, as I have, from people who've invested in this thing. And in the early stages, you know, I was accused of being a fool. I didn't know what I was talking about. And uh, yes. this thing was genuine. That kind of went silent after the thing, you know, when Johann Steinberg went AWOL in December and, uh, you know, whether he's in Brazil or Panama, you know, I don't know if we'll ever find out. We haven't heard any anything more about that. But there has been a lot of devastation caused by this. I mean, people writing to me saying, well, you know, I put everything I got into this. Uh, older people oh, in their wow. 80s, you know, who are looking to supplement their pensions, uh, who've lost that. So my question is, do you think this was a scam from the get-go? Or is this something that, you know, we'll fake it until we make it? We, we, we have a bot. Uh, you know, if you listen into uh, some of these Zoom calls that the MTI people have had or the Recovery Action Group, it does seem that there was a there were quite a few guys there who were involved in bot development. They, in other words, they they created these computerized algorithms to trade markets, and some of them had you know things that seemed to work, and but your hands seemed to have the best. What's your take on right. that? <laughs> yeah, so the fact is there is no magical trading bot that is going to make a profit that is going to end the day in a profit every day, especially not with the amount of Bitcoin that we're talking about, right? So not especially, but the, the amount of Bitcoin that we're talk, talking about is a factor, and I'll try to explain that. So firstly, when you're talking about these financial markets, and, and honestly, I don't profess to be a professional trader, but from the basic understanding I've gained from trying my hand at this myself, from my conversations with actual traders, what MTI claimed they were doing was betting on derivatives, right? So in a derivative market, for you to win, someone has to lose. It's a zero-sum game. And so if you are in a market like that and you are always winning, eventually people are going to stop betting against you is what it comes down to, right? So obviously, you know, there's another principle. There'll always be a greater fool. But eventually, you know, people are going to wise up and people might even figure out, you know, they'll look at sort of a pattern of trading and be able to figure out what the MTI, what the MTI's magical bot is doing and just build their own. Like, you know, if you think that you're so smart that nobody could reverse engineer your magical trading bot or a magical trading bot, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, like far more complicated systems than that have been reverse engineered you know, all over the world, you know, starting from the tech boom in the United States where, you know, the IBM's BIOS was reverse engineered, moving all the way over to Southeast Asia when Samsung and Huawei reverse engineered what Apple was doing in the United States to build their own phones, right? So like the fact is someone is going gonna, is gonna to duplicate what you do. The second thing that I mentioned here the, uh, about the number of Bitcoin, and I did this calculation for carte blanche when, uh, for a segment that I helped them put together on MTI, if you look at just the, the last bit of before the scheme exploded, the 23,000 Bitcoin, and you go, okay, if MTI continues generate 0.5% profit a day, 
then how long before it owns every Bitcoin in existence? Because what some people might not realize is there is a cap on the amount of Bitcoin that will ever be created. It is very different to fiat money in, in that sense and more like you know a, a scarce resource like gold or oil. It's eventually going to run out. There's a cap on it and that cap is 21 million. So you can actually work out how long that would take and that, that comes to 3.7 years. Now, if you factor in that, uh, firstly, the bot doesn't just trade at 0.5%. Sometimes it trades at 1%. Um, and that people are still, you know, are, would still be depositing money into the scheme. Then MTI could end up owning every single Bitcoin ever in two years, right? Yeah. And so if you just do a basic uh, check, a, a rationality check on the system, that way from understanding how bitcoin works like plugging in the variables into a simple log calculation you can see that this thing is just inherently unsustainable um and so you know johan was challenged about this on their mythic on their on their infamous zoom calls um you know he would say that he's looking into adopting other currencies and so on and so forth but like for some reason people were just willing to swallow that the scheme was generating profits at a wholly unsustainable rate and no one in the financial sector was buying up this bot it, it i mean it, it's uh, the, the 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 amount of illogical arguments that that people were willing to accept in the pursuit of their greed was staggering now your your other question was was this a scam from the beginning. That's unclear. So chatting to the folks on the My Broadband forums who have been investigating the scheme since January last year as a result of their friends and family coming to them and going, is this legitimate? And them trying to warn people to get out. They managed to piece together quite a comprehensive history of the scheme. So it started in 2019, I think around April, April, May 2019. And it just did some, you know, uh, then it was actually a mirror trading or a copy trading scheme. You deposited your Bitcoin into FX Choice, who was their broker at the time. FX Choice is a brokerage based in Belize. And then the master trader would execute trades and your trading account would then just copy those trades. Then I think in around June or July, they made a couple of disastrous trades. People lost tens of thousands of rand, maybe even hundreds of thousands of rand in, in a handful of trades. And that's when MTI switched over from this copy trading system to what was clearly a pyramid scheme. So the, the actual pyramid scheme was introduced, I think, in around September 2019. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure if that was a fake it until you make it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we'll eventually have this trading bot that generates this level of returns for, for us. Um, it, it seems incredibly unlikely. Um, and it seems like the, the scheme um, might have been set up so that people could recover their losses and exit. That's what it looks like from the outside. You know, that, that is what the intention was when the switchover happened from the copy trading system to this, what we call MTI version 2.0. Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking to someone's intentions is impossible. Um, I have actually fired off a couple of emails to Johann Steinberg on this topic, and obviously he's not responded. <laughs> okay. Uh, where do you think he is, by the way? Yeah, probably Panama, based on the information we've received. So, you know, that's if he's alive. If he's alive, uh, to, yeah. yeah. To be completely crass about it, you know, like it's unclear whether he's alive at the moment. I've not 
you know, spoken to his wife because I'm, I'm not sure that that would be a productive discussion. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of speculation out there about, uh, you know, where he is, is he alive, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and some of the people I've spoken to swear that he is a very kind and, and generous person and there may be mm. an aspect to that. I, you know, I, I think it's very hard to judge people. They're, they're complex creatures and I think, you know, when you're put into a corner, you know, people are counting you. Imagine you're looking at these tens of thousands of people who are relying on you to deliver them out of poverty. And you recognize, you know, there's domestic servants in there who've put, you know, five years of savings, which is not a lot for them. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're confronting this horror train that is coming down. You can just imagine what's going on in a person's mind with that. Yeah, but I mean, I don't excuse anybody who's involved in the scheme. I want to make that entirely clear. So while, you know, we can speak about the personalities involved, and I think that's worthwhile, the fact is there is no evidence before me that absolves anybody at this stage. It was clear as day what what the scheme was from the outside. So I can't believe that people on the inside didn't realize what was happening. And so, you know, until proven otherwise, I just cannot give them the benefit of the doubt anymore. I understand what you're saying, and, and um, it, it would be interesting to explore the personalities involved because of the conversations we've had with folks who have interacted with Johann Steinberg and uh, the others involved. Um, what I want to make plain is that the leaders in this scheme are serial serial multi-level marketers. They're serial Ponzi scheme investors, and you know, based on that history, you know, one can't help but conclude that they knew exactly what they were doing. And the only thing that happened with MTI is it happened to just grow beyond, you know, into a size that they could no longer really control. You know, BTC Global flew under the radar for the most part. Just explain, BTC Global was a predecessor of MTI, right? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. In 2018, a scheme called BTC Global uh, exploded, and a lot of the, the top people in MTI were involved in BTC Global. And if you do a side-by-side -side comparison of the stories, it's uncanny how similar they are. So the one difference is BTC Global had this uh, alleged CEO called Stephen Twain, who no one had met before in their lives. And he then vanished after some story about being robbed and attacked in his home. And But what's funny is like you can draw a line from even that story to a report in the British press about a trader who was assaulted in their home. And so, like, the, the stories, even the exit stories are not particularly original. You know, they're just yeah. derived from what somebody's read, what the, that's happened in the, in the real world. At least that's what it looks like. So, Stephen Twain from BTC Global vanishes and, and the scheme collapses. Um, and uh, now, now, replace Stephen Twain, not with Johann Steinberg, but with Magical Trading Bot, right? Mm. So, MTI has a Magical Trading Bot that no one has ever seen really. And so, yes, the alleged CEO of MTI Vanish vanishes, Johann Steinberg, he's a real person that people have met. But that's not the comparison that, that that's relevant here. The, the relevance is the thing that is hidden. And in BTC Global's case, it was the CEO um, who was the trader. You know, he, he was the master trader who was make, generating all the money. In MTI's case, the master trader generating all the money was this mythical bot. Johann Steinberg is almost irrelevant to that comparison.
mm. except for the fact that he also does a runner and and causes the scheme to collapse because he has control, allegedly uh, sole control over the withdrawals in this scheme. Sorry, the, the larger point I wanted to make here was personalities aside and, uh, you know, how he was cornered and how soft-spoken and, and good a person he was, potentially was aside. The fact is, he has previously had no scruples about standing on people's necks to enrich himself. You know, him and the other people who helped him run and found Mirror Trading International uh, just have these sordid histories with scams, including Willy Briet was involved in MTI. He's listed, in fact, as a founder member. He's in the founder's pool of MTI, and uh, we can perhaps break that down about what MTI said about that, but that's significant. Willy Briet was the CEO of a company called Voltage Solutions, which is also collapsed, and um, he, did, he tried to do a runner, but was eventually tracked down at a friend's house, and the whole scheme is being liquidated as well. And so, you know, when you see so many serial scammers converge on MTI, you can't help but call into question the intentions of the people involved in the thing and can't help but wonder whether they didn't know from the beginning exactly what they were doing. All right. So you've seen the Zoom call, which uh, I think was leaked onto YouTube, where all the senior people involved were basically disavowing any knowledge. You know, they, they were pinning right. the, the blame on Johan. And I think there was a guy there, Joel Santiago from the United States. I mean, he was almost in tears. I've got to go to my family. I've got to go to my church. I've got to explain. They've all put money in this, this yeah. kind of thing. But but anyway, there was there was a, a huge amount of sunlight being put between them and, and Johan Steinberg. You're not buying that. No, not until I can see some other compelling evidence to prove, uh, you know, that their intentions were pure. Because Santiago has just moved on to the next scheme. Hmm. This is why I'm saying they're just serial uh, Ponzi investors. Hmm. And, you know, in many of their cases, you know, they even end up running the very schemes where they effectively steal people's money. This is where I, I think that discussing the personalities and the psychology behind this could be quite interesting. And, and I definitely would love to speak to a psychologist about it at some stage. But there's interesting videos about this on YouTube already. If people want to go check out CoffeeZilla, um, who speaks to people who just serially invest in these scams, they delude themselves into believing the lie. So initially they might understand that it's a lie, but then they repeat the lie to themselves so often enough that they start believing it's the truth. And so there's this level of self-delusion happening to the point where eventually you just believe the lie, right? And so it could be that the emotion that they experience at the collapse of the scheme is completely genuine because they've convinced themselves of the truth of the lie. I certainly will not be absolving any of the people involved in this thing and who have recruited in people underneath them. I think it's important to understand that psychology as well. I, I even had an opportunity to interact with uh, several investors who tried to recruit me into the scheme, even after I asked them directly, is this thing a scam? And why are you, you recruiting people into a thing which appears to be a scam? You know, And they would fight with me. And then at the end, end of the fight, they would still honestly try to recruit me into this thing. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And so to put names down, um, this is one of the areas where the MTI leaks was inaccurate, or I want to say was difficult for the MTI leaks to draw 100% correlations. So it's got to do with where people had multiple accounts. So that's one of the other things um, that happened in the scheme that convinced me that something shady was going on, because there were people who just had 
you know, uh, who, who had, you know, a couple of different accounts, you know, three, four accounts, but sometimes 10, 20 accounts in their own names, which is completely against the rules and is obviously used to scam the scam, right? Yeah. But I reached out to, to everybody who I was naming in, in my articles. And uh, one of them was the so-called legal head of MTI, Leonard Gray, who who is actually associated with the head of communications, Sherry Marks. Um, uh, uh, as far as I understand, they were married at one stage, and and have children together. And so, you know, despite whatever animosity there might be, he was pulled into the scheme as as head of legal, and the MTI leak showed that he had multiple accounts. So I fired off. A couple of emails to you know the addresses for Leonard Gray in the system, and a different Leonard Gray came back to me. This is why journalists need to ask for comment, is because sometimes you got the wrong you know, person. Uh, yeah, you've got the inaccurate information from your source, and you need to validate it, right? So this is what the the whole right of reply process is for. So it emerges that no, there are two Leonard Grays in in involved in MTI. The one is a high high level executive at a mining company in South Africa. He starts arguing with me over email. His his daughter is a founder in the scheme, which is part of the reason th- th- they were so interesting and why I was reaching out to them in the first place was because Leonard was head of legal, so I'm going to name him. He needs to comment on the story. But also the other Gray, who some people were speculating was Leonard's wife, but it emerges was his daughter, is listed as a founder in the scheme. And so I start exchanging emails uh, with these folks And I realized that the psychology happening here is that people who invest in these schemes do not care whose necks they have to stand on to enrich themselves as long as they're three degrees separated from the pain they're causing. As long as they have to look in the eyes. Just tell me, did you not also get legally threatened for for writing this? And and, and what impact did that have on your reporting? Did you back off a little bit or what? Yeah. So it's unfortunate and I almost don't want to publicly disclose it because I don't want to to uh, like um, explain how effective uh, these kinds of threats are. But yeah, I was threatened on two counts. And the one was a cease and desist from Ulrich Ru, who is now, um, you know, in a very bad spot after, you know, being on a Zoom call with uh, the MTI leadership and talking about how great the scheme is. Just to be clear, Ulrich Ru was legal representative for MTI. Yes. And, and, so, but his mandate, uh, I did speak to him, was was limited uh, per what he was saying to certain correspondences between regulators and, and so on. It, so it wasn't a, right, a, right. a broadband mandate. Right. And so even though Leonard was head of legal, they did, um, you know, as far as I know, he can't actually practice. Um, and so they had to use Ulrich uh, Rue to actually do whatever legal stuff they needed to do. So, yeah, Ulrich Rue has since dis- tried to distance themselves from MTI, but um, it's their name on the letterhead of the cease and desist I received. And it, it has a chilling effect on journalism because the fact is what people might not realize in South Africa is that media companies are not flush with cash. We can't, you know, be spending hundreds of thousands of rands or even a million rand if it ends up going to the Supreme Court to defend defamation cases, right? Mm. And so by that point, you know, I'd already published two major articles on MTI anyway. I'd published the one on the MTI leaks. I'd published the one about the key people involved in the scheme. 
and I was working on several others, like, you know, exploring, you know, delving more deeply into the founder's pool, into the multiple accounts, and, uh, you know, following up on the allegations from MTI that they had initiated first contact with the FSCA and not the other way around, and stuff like that. And that's when I received the cease and desist. And so, you know, I started sticking out feelers to to the industry and going, you know, uh, is it worthwhile for me to stick my neck out here for for my broadband to stick its neck out here? The thing is, is that the, to, to, to put it bluntly, like no one is grateful enough for this reporting to pony up money to defend ourselves in court. Yeah, right? you're, so, you're on your own. You're on your own there in that regard. Yeah. Right. So, so everybody wants me and us to stick our necks out on yeah. their behalf, but are not willing to stand with us when the chips are down. That's Except, right. That's right. You know, I, I, so they, they're standing there and they, it's like, you know, a schoolboy fight, 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 you know, right. but they're right. not going to, they're not going to back you up. I want to qualify that there are some members in the My Broadband community who provided their unwavering, unconditional support should it come to that, right? Yeah, and yeah. so I want to say thanks to those folks who, you know, when when I explained what the situation was, they said, listen, dude, if it comes down to it, don't worry, we'll raise the money. But the fact is that at that point, the information that people needed to make an informed decision about MTI was out. Um, other journalists were picking up the baton. You were still reporting about it, and other journalists were reporting about it as well. And so, you know, the, my broadband could take the better part of Valor option here. <laughs> but also, it, it allows us a, at least a way to bargain, right? So if, if we just keep publishing, then uh, you don't have any leverage, if you have to sit around a table with a lawyer who's threatening you with a defamation case. If they proceed with a defamation case, you can just keep reporting, right? And do exactly what they're trying to stop you to do. And so this is why, you know, this kind of thing is actually quite effective for both sides is because you end up at a standoff. But, you know, when ultimately the scheme collapsed, all bets were off. You can then report without fear. Yeah, the difficulty that you have if you bring a defamation suit is, you know, as a journalist, you have the discovery. That's your lever. You know, you're going to call for every document. You're going to call for every bit of information. Yeah. You know, it does take a little bit of courage, and, and, I, and I've got to hand it to you there. You know, you did persist with it. We are running out of time, Jan. I want to ask one final question here. Where do you think the story goes from here? Is this thing going to play out over the next few years? Are we going to get so sick and tired of hearing about it? Um, or are you? Are we on to the next? Yeah, so so there are other scams happening. I don't see anything quite of, of the, the size of Mirror Trading International. Oh, one thing on the previous point I just wanted to highlight was that, you know, despite the cease and desist having over my head, I did actually uh, then uh, start working with Carte Blanche to produce to and work with the indomitable Sasha Wine over there, you know, bring a story to Carte Blanche. And uh, my broadband certainly didn't back down when the scheme started failing. You know, at that point, you know, my editor said, okay, let's do this. Uh, keep reporting, you know, on this, um, you know, the story is important, let's go, you know, as new important breaking news about the scam was coming in. And so I just wanted to to highlight to highlight that. Uh, and the, the, the cease and desist, by the way, was really funny because they, they were basically insinuating that I was anonymous today, but they got their timelines all wrong. The information provided to Ulrich Ru was completely wrong. And, and so, yeah, the, everything was would have been spurious. It would have been thrown out of court at the end of the day, I think. On your question about about what happens from here. Yes, I think this is the thing that, that people are most worried about is that this is going to become another Creon. 
And for folks who don't remember the Creon saga, that played out over the better part of a decade. Creon exploded a decade and a half even. Creon exploded in 2002. And the people responsible were only, uh, the criminal part of the, the thing was only resolved in 2015. You know, the, the first payouts to investors, I think, only happened in 2011 or 2013. I, I don't remember exactly when now. And so there's a huge campaigning from the advocates and, and liquidators involved in this to pick the, the right liquidation person or persons so that that doesn't happen. And uh, now folks have picked Rian van Rooyen, and we'll see if, if he lives up to his reputation here, because this thing can drag out to the point where, you know, as you say, people are already sick and tired of it. I can see it in the statistics on the articles we publish on MTI. Mm, yeah. People just aren't reading about it anymore. Yeah. Um, and and uh, what's sad is people also don't read warnings about other scams. Yeah. So it's not until people are starting to get burnt that there's interest in a thing and uh, and that's a huge problem Jan Vermeulen thanks so much for talking to us on MoneyWeb Crypto and uh, let's get you back on I'm sure there's going to be more episodes and chapters to reveal on this uh, good work really good work there that you've done at My Broadband and uh, I mean I use it as a resource I will not lie you know it's a great and engaged community so, so thanks a lot for the work you're doing and for coming on thank you very much